Hi, I'm Paul Mitchell, speaker and author. Welcome to Enterprise Radio, your podcast on transformational leadership. In this interview, we talk with Father Chris Riley, who is the CEO of Youth Off the Streets. One of the definitions of leadership that I really love, I think it was Ernest Shackleton who first said it, was that a leader is a dealer in hope. What a great definition. And you'll find that Father Chris absolutely epitomizes this. His passion, his dedication comes from seeing the hope, the possibilities, the potential in everyone he works with, despite some at times horrific circumstances that people find themselves in. So sit back and listen to the difference uh, you can make in the world with the power of purpose. Father Chris, uh, absolute honour and, and privilege to spend some time with you and to, I guess, give our leaders a bit of a feel about uh, leadership in a, in a totally different way. So rather than me saying what your role is, could you uh, tell our listeners what your role is and, and the work that you do? Yeah, my current role is CEO of Youth of the Streets, um, which is a strange role really for me. Certainly in my training, we weren't trained to be CEOs or companies or anything like that. My expectation as when I was ordained would have been to be uh, probably principal in our schools. Right. And I did that for five years, but then discovered youth on the streets and a passion uh, that I really needed to reach the things that no one else could reach. So that was my driving force. The CEO role is, uh, but it's very different the way I I would operate as CEO. I don't manage the business side so much. I manage the... I manage the services, uh, the delivery of programs to our kids that is most important. I think when you have a normal CEO, they have a company or a business they have to run. Yes. I let the business side get done by other people. Yeah. Uh, they report to me, those people. My time is taken up in the services. That's where my passion is. Okay. So I need to lead, not in the business sense, but I need to lead in the operational and services area. So I need to be updated with things so I can introduce new strategies for kids, new programs for kids. Right. Um, so that's how I see myself. That's my role. We're, we're a charity. We work with kids. So the, the CEO really needs to be an expert in that area, not in the business area. Gotcha. So you leave that. Obviously, you've got a great team around you. You leave that up to them. Yeah. But for you, it's about strategy, new services, helping and reaching the kids yeah. and, and keeping the passion alive, I would think. Yeah, that's very important to me. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us how you... Um, first got involved with this. I know it was, was it 1991 that Youth Off the Streets was set up, yeah, I believe. Was, yeah, um, I actually uh, joined the religious order I belong to now because I, I was, um, I'd seen the old Boys Town movie when I was 15. Yes, I saw that. And decided at 15 I was going to be a priest to do the same sort of things. And because I was so shy and introverted and, and still I'm very much a loner, it's strange that I'm in this sort of job, but um, I was so introverted. My parents sent me to, my, to a boarding school. I had no knowledge of the, never heard of the order, never heard of the boarding school. I got sent to that one because it, it was $120 a term in those days. It was cheap. But as I was playing footy on the Oval down in Victoria, I sort of looked across and this big blue bus came in with Boys Town on it. And I thought, wow, what's that? And... Um, the brother said, you know, we run Boys Town in Sydney. And I said, OK, I'm joining you guys. And so at 18, I had my collar on. And on my 21st birthday, I had graduated from Teachers College. And I was sent to Boys Town as a young brother, where I taught for a couple of years there. Um, 
And then in 86, I was sent back to Boys Town as principal, and Boys Town had changed dramatically in the, from the first day. When I was there as a young brother, there were 140 kids there every day of the year. There, there were now only 40 kids, and they all had to go home for school holidays and um, weekends. And one of my first jobs was to expel a kid from the school because he got kicked out of home. And I'm thinking, this is the most bizarre thing I've yes, ever had absolutely. to do. And so I didn't know what to do on school, on school holidays or because uh, I've never had weekends or school holidays off in any of my appointments before. Weekends, I didn't know what to do. The others were going off playing golf, sailing yachts, the priests were. And I thought, I started reading about street kids and I see the front pages where these kids were just abandoned. So I started going in on the streets every weekend and school holidays every day to connect with um, probably the most violent kids you would have found in Sydney that other charities kept away from because they were yep. so violent. Um, I connected very strongly with them and uh, I used to, it was practical, it was never religion with me, it was always food and bandages, gotcha. going yep. to court with them, getting him out of jail. Yep. And eventually uh, one night I found a kid was crying, a really tough kid was crying and I couldn't understand why and eventually I had to understand he was crying because he was so cold that it was hurting like a knife cutting into his flesh sure. and I made a commitment that night that I would go in every night so when, when I put the kids to bed at Boys Town I, an older priest would come over and sit there in case the kids got up to stuff um, and you'd go in and do your other work every so, night yeah. yeah and get home by two and be up at six with the Boys Town kids and I, I was really, really tired, but I kept saying to myself, what is a bit of tiredness compared to the pain that these kids are living in? So the other thing that strikes me too, Father Chris, is that that's a, a fairly extroverted thing to do in, in some ways, for, and you've been really upfront talking about that you're a bit of an introvert in some ways, yeah. and as and the CEOs are often painted as these very extrovert out there people. But there's a there's a there's a, a, a quietness about you. So, um, how was that in terms of pushing against that? Does that make some sense that you're sort of a? I was really really quiet and introvert. And, and when you're a kid, when you hear the word introvert, you think really bad disease almost. You know, and I've studied so much nowadays. It was just I get energy from being alone. I still do. Exactly. That's, yeah, all, that's yeah. all it is. But it, in but what I I guess um. When it comes to kids, I'm, I'm an extrovert. When it comes to speaking gotcha. out for them, right. there's, there's a passion. I'm quite ruthless when it comes to kids in terms of being yeah. outspoken against people who, right. are, who are putting up bad policy or putting our kids down. I, I, I'm very, very uh, strong in my language, and it's the mm. only time I get very strong in my language and animated is when you know people are putting kids down or um, yeah. suggesting we lock them up instead of yeah. putting them into therapeutic programs. So. I'm passionate about them, and I have. So I found a voice when I was 20, when I was 18. When yeah. I got this collar on, it was I changed almost because I had a I had a focus and a passion and a higher purpose. Not not because you don't really have a higher purpose, yeah. but there was something an earthly purpose that was sort of there for you yeah. And, yeah. and pushed against. Because I think a lot of the leaders we meet, um, you know, are, are wondering what they really stand for. <laughs> Sometimes they can feel a bit lost. Yeah. And it was interesting that even at 18 you found that. Um, yeah, I did. And the kids are amazed still. I, I said I was 15 when I got it. And my, I teach year 11 and 12 English here. And it was, um, how, do you, how do you get it so quickly? <laughs> I'm saying I was really, really lucky because you guys are floundering. You're 18, 19 now, almost. But um, I did find it. And it, it, was, it, it gave me a really strong voice. And, I yeah. was, and right throughout even teachers' college, it was as if... My lecturer sensed that I had this um, mission with disadvantaged kids, so I was put into, not into mainstream schools for teaching prac, but into orphanages where I, again, my, my lecturer 
wrote glowing reports about my ability to connect with young people yeah. and particularly marginalised young people and that 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 orphanage I remember were, they were little kids so I was trained as a primary teacher originally and I remember a, a little boy would run to me every day and I knew he was going to die in 12 months so that was really really tough and I guess working with kids you can never get this big ego as a CEO yeah. because um, you deal with so much pain and, and death and tragedy yeah. to be honest yeah. so you don't get this big head of I'm really successful because you'll mm. be kicked in the guts so Chris, it's, it's, so Chris it, it feels like uh um, there's an there's a, a real connection with your own vulnerability. You know, some people sometimes it's people that can connect like that mm-hmm. are in touch with their own vulnerability. Was there anything in your own background that that had that that feeling of vulnerability even before you did this work? Oh yeah, I think the insecurity was there constantly. I I didn't feel I had any friends in the world whatsoever. I lived with animals more. Someone would come to the front door of our farm and I'd be out the back door down the cow shed or with my horses and my dogs. And I still got all those things, my horses and all that sort of stuff still. So that's been a real connection. Um, Yeah, and I remember as a kid at at school, when I went to boarding school, there was some really bad stuff happening there. And I would sit in a church sometimes just praying to die, to be honest. I just... I just felt so out of the world. It was just, you know, I didn't feel part of it at all. And at the end of the day, I, I did have friends, but I couldn't keep them because I'd invite them down to my place for the weekend. I couldn't stand being with them for 24 hours a day. <laughs> so I had all these good friends, and I was good at sports, so that that helped me link in. But I guess um, there was a principal in my last three years of school who believed in me very much, and so... With all that insecurity, as a, as a 16-year-old, I was taking the year seven and eights for bingo Sunday night because the brothers put them to bed at 7.30. So I could do whatever I like with the, you know, me and a couple of mates would take, you know, 60 seven and eights, you know, and we're only 16-year-olds and I organised basketball competitions for them. And so this, the principal was a, a, very, a, a man who really understood me and... and yeah. I could be impulsive, so, you know, I'd go to him and say, you know, I remember when I put my application to join the order in, I was, within an hour before they discussed it, I withdrew it because one of the brothers came up to me and he said, um, you'll be a hopeless Salesian. And I thought, oh, wow, thanks for someone saying that to me. Wasn't so, too motivating. <laughs> and, I, and he, they all, I think only one brother in those three years survived. They, they were people under incredible pressure, great talent, but they broke. So he left um, soon after that. So I said to, I said to one priest, I said, look, just tell Father Cornell that I'm not, I'm not going to join the order, withdraw my application. And then the next day I walked up to the, the principal who had, who, and I said, can I put my application back in? And he looked at me and said, I never withdrew it. <laughs> so that confidence yeah. was incredible. He um, trusted me. So you had in, there was someone that was exactly there was. I mean, yeah. this is uh, this is the role that a lot of leaders play. They is to believe in someone, to to give to to often believe in someone more than they believe in themselves. It's just a role, I guess, you play. Um, on behalf of a lot of youth, I'm glad God didn't answer that prayer of uh, wanting to die at that particular yeah, point. Yeah, that so, was, <laughs> but yeah. can I got to say too, we've got uh, you've talked about the animals. I, So what does leadership mean to you? You've talked about that it is a bit of a different leadership role. What, what is, and where have you seen what you would consider great leadership? 
I guess the, the, um, that principal I was speaking about was probably the greatest uh, leader I've experienced and he was really quiet, never got, um, never got upset with me anyway, uh, all other people, was very, very calm. And I had to learn that because I was impulsive as a young boy. Yeah. You know, I wanted to move. I could run 20 miles without blinking, so I'd be out there charging around with kids. I, but that, and would be, you know, want to do this, and I'd be, you know, challenging this person and that person. And he always accepted that, and I just kept watching him and just seeing that he was always calm. He was. He saw the strengths in me, and I think that's probably the most important thing for me is the ability to see strengths in people. And so I, I think. Um, all our programs with kids are strength-based. We call them strength-based yep. interventions. And I think with staff, I, the staff that I personally supervise come in when they first um, are being supervised by me and say, uh, you know, have you got anything for me, basically? Are you going to tell me off? And I said, well, if I'm going to tell you off, I'll, it won't be during supervision, that's for sure. Uh, um, there'll be a corrective action if I need to do that. And I don't think I've ever, I haven't done one of those in a long, long time. I said, I just need to hear what you're doing, what your dreams are, what things you need to change. And last week one said, have you got any constructive criticism in the in the annual review, the performance review? And I said, positive things uh, can be constructive. And so I've cho- chosen in your case to do um, constructive. I, you know, you're doing yeah. a good job, so yeah. what am I going to try and find? And, yeah. and that mentality, I think, of people coming into an office and one of the things I have to deal with is that because of my persona uh, people will say you walk into a room and you change it and I, I don't get that about myself but I, ha- I, I accept that um, I can be really quiet but if I look even it can be taken in the wrong gotcha. way because so people are always watching you and trying to get yeah. the cues from you yeah, yeah so yeah. when people come in I'll say look I'm, you're not going to get I don't know what's happening in your previous supervision but I'm yeah. not going to be yeah. finding fault with you at, at each supervision if there's anything that I need to bring up I'll bring it up but I just want to hear what you're doing and I, and I really love people coming up to me and saying can we do this can we you know create something else so I really enjoy staff coming to me like that um, so a couple of things there one I get from your that principle that just saw so much in you is one it's funny isn't it because we do look at our leaders and leaders cast a big shadow mm-hmm. and that they're role modeling you know uh, I am the way the truth yeah. and the light and yeah. so it's the role modeling yeah. it was the it was the calmness of no matter what was happening, the incredible focus on strengths rather than what you yeah. can't do. The uh, I love the fact that you know that you're helping people to articulate or get clear on their dreams that they can still dream, um, and and the, and the listening, and therefore that provides an envelope where they take initiative um, because they feel safe, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think that last the manager I last said he said because uh, he's I've handed his um, supervision over to someone else because I've uh, I was. One of the things I've done in the last few years is give up all uh, advisory group that I was, you know, on the RDA and on, you know, the mental health thing in Canberra, all okay. those sorts of yes. things. And I eventually worked out that they they like having my name there, but um, and that's what they were using. And what I was inputting uh, wasn't really taken up. And so I thought I really need to do my job, and my job is with the kids. So I then took over direct mm. line managing um, our outreach services from. Southwest Sydney, right? Yeah. And also all the residential care. So I took over all those cluster managers as well. 
Do you want that that's disturbing? No, not at all. I think can't you think it adds value to the thing? I think it's fantastic. I, I think it is. And, 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 and listeners, I've got to let you know we're quite safe here. Um, but if you saw the size of these dogs, it'd blow you away. We should get a picture of this to put on the site as well. An interesting thing coming through here is that a lot of leaders get get distracted from what their real job is. I'm not saying those uh, committees were a distraction. But something and you say, hold it a minute, what's the best use of my skills? What's my real job? And you got back to mission, if you like. Would that be a Yeah, and, and my staff will say, the only time I'm really animated is when I'm talking about my kids or if I'm teaching. And it was interesting, um, the kids yesterday, they started talking about religion and I said something about religion and one of my girls looked at me and said, we've never heard you talk about religion. I said, I don't talk about religion, it's damn boring as far as I'm concerned, go get off it. But what they were said about a priest, they said... No other priest would care about us. You know, they would be in their churches and their parishes, and, and yet you're sitting here with us. Yeah. Why is that? And I said, well, because you're the most important people in my life. Yeah. And um, one of them said, we believe you, because we were told that you've given up all these committees to be with us. And I said, mm. yeah, you're the people I would prefer to be with. I don't like going to functions. I don't like black tie events. I don't like those formal things. They, they drain me terribly. But in this classroom, I feel really good. Out, out of outreach. Isn't that great? We, we talk about in one of our programs that a leader needs to find the channel that best suits them. Absolutely. And that, that some people are quite good in terms of leading big groups and talking to big groups. Some people might be like fireside chat, mm-hmm. but it feels like you found your channel. You, you know what works for you, and that's where you best lead. Yeah, I, I do. I can connect to, to big groups. Yeah. I... I and I know I'm a very powerful speaker. I've just come back from Norfolk Island, giving advice there, and the whole island is excited that you know I, I spent two days, fourteen hours, back-to-back meetings with every group on Norfolk Island, talking about young people. So I see that as really significant yeah. part of my job too. So I do a lot of have cut down a fair bit, but I do a lot of uh, talking about you know challenges with young people and yes. giving people examples and can have room a room full of people tears because of the background of the kids I get very close to and I, and I tell the story very well yeah. it's the only story I can tell, it's of the course. only conversation I can have, yeah. that's why I can't do black tie events because they want small talk of that and I'm just, I don't not I can't do that, no, I just get out I, honestly if I go into a black tie event and they're all still standing at the door still mm. I'll go down and sit in a quiet place in the hotel so all sitting down so I'll go in sit, sit on my seat, do what I have to do and go so lasting first out is my theory with, it, with events like that but and it's more real it seems to me that the authenticity you, you see such rawness in life yeah. to have anything else but that is such a yeah. contrast is such yeah. So, Father Chris, a lot of the, the uh, listeners to this may not be aware of some of the uh, the challenges and the issues that a lot of the kids that you work with deal with. Maybe you could just give us a bit of a feeling about what's at the heart of the work that you do. Yeah, I, I guess uh, uh, the, the concept I use at the moment is we have so many kids who are locked into a sense of hopelessness, that there's uh, no hope for them, there's no future, there's no education, there's no job, and so they give up basically and turn to drugs, alcohol, to kill the pain of that uselessness. 
sexual assault is extremely high in this country. It's underreported significantly. Wow. It's not taken seriously in this country. And I think every kid, or nearly every kid in my class, has been sexually assaulted and physically assaulted over many, many years. And what I, I remember last year, one of the year 11s came up to me after class and said, can I speak to you? And I said, sure. But you've got to run because I'm busy and I've got to get to another meeting. And the first words he said to me, a 17-year-old, he said, Father, I was raped last night. And I just <laughs> said to him, how the hell did you keep... I know I'm tough in class, but how the hell did you keep that, your head together? And he looked at me, and I looked at him and thought, this kid has been, had this done to him his whole life by partners his mother would bring in. But he looked, he got a sense of hope in his eyes when he said, but I'm going to take this guy, I'm going to have him charged, because I don't, not because of me, but because I don't want him hurt, to hurt anyone else. So when, I, when you're dealing with kids like this, the word courage is what I use. Mm, I say yeah, constantly, yeah. You, you know, incredible courage, you guys. And um, I'm really tough in class. You know, they have to be quiet and, and don't care if they're 18 or 19. But that, I said, I'm here to work with you to get you through HSC. And I'll be really tough on them. But then I'll take them outside. And as one of our girls was a new girl the other day. And she said, I, I said, you know, you, you went through my HSC class three times, banging doors. And, and she said, you're here to teach me, not lecture me. I said, oh, all right, that's, that's the way it is. <laughs> Bit of feedback for you there, Father. So I, I um, got on with the class and I pulled her out and I said, I know you've been through hell and mm. I admire your incredible courage. And she gave me a book after that called Damage, the most horrendous abuse of, um, of a child. And I said, is this your story? And she said, a lot of it is my story. So clash in the classroom, quite word, saying courage and then she opens up. the best teacher she's ever had for a while anyway uh, because I, I acknowledge her pain I acknowledge it's difficult for her but in class you're going to do as you're told if you can't cope with that just walk out of my classroom sit in a chair over there read a book don't come back in five minutes spend half an hour there when you're ready to come back in so it's, it's being able to push them but also let them know that I've been doing this for 38 years and I I know what they're going through I feel what they're going through and um even yesterday in class, one one of my girls is such a bright girl. I said, "You haven't slept all night, have you?" And she said, "I said you look terrible." And she laughed a bit. But I looked at her and said, "I've been doing this 38 years, and looking at you still breaks my heart." Mm. And um, I said, "I just wish you guys could get some safe sleep somewhere." So that's where I, that's where my passion is all the time. It's it's not about them. It's where they're at. And. Um, and it's also what I hear, though, is, is one, just like your, that leader did for you, the principal saw something in you, you still, there's hope. And this whole concept of that a leader is a dealer in hope, that, 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 and, and, it's, and you bring that hope out by getting them to get in touch with their courage. Mm. Um, yeah, that's true. And I think um, if I didn't operate, because a lot of people say, how, how have you survived in this sort of job for 38 years? And I'm saying, well, because I don't see the pain only. I hear the pain, and I yeah. think I've got... I sometimes think I've got a, a, a sort of a, something on my forehead saying, if you've been hurt, uh, you know, tell me. Uh, even yesterday I was, when I, I was thinking, what am I doing this for? But a guy out near Quarry Field, 66, uh, is really depressed. He rang my office saying, I need to see Father because he's the only person I think who can help. I've never met this guy. And here I am subjected to, you know, a guy who as a child was... Um, put into orphanages at a very young age, was sexually assaulted, physically abused. His father rejected him after his mother died. And at the end, he said, I feel much better. And I'm thinking, good. And it doesn't, 
it doesn't weigh heavily on me. Okay. I don't. Um, I think I've had it. I've seen people who just take it on. I can yeah. just say, okay, that's helped him. I'm not going to go and dwell on that. Yeah. But it's also because I see the possibilities in people. In, in his case, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I don't spend time with adults very often, and I felt really. I think that's a real key, isn't it? Because sometimes leaders can give people feedback or listen to the story and, and walk out feeling that they have now got, you know, so-called a monkey, you know, and not in any way trying to mm. belittle this situation, but they've got it on their back where... And that's often because they don't see hope in the person. They don't see strength. Yeah. And I, I would think that, uh, that that's the difference. The other thing I picked up too was that with that girl in the classroom that the importance of clear boundaries. You know, um, look, while you're in this class, here's the rules, and yeah, they're, yeah. they're for everyone. Outside of it can be different. And yet yet being able to be um, close but distant enough it, it seems to be coming through there. Yeah, about, about these kids... And the, because my first job was dealing with these kids. In 1976 at Boys Town, I, it was my first appointment. 45 kids in my class, 80 kids in my dormitory. I was 21, probably 70 kilo, really yeah. active and loved the kids, so I got on really well. But I learnt really clearly that you need very clear boundaries, right. Right. very tight. Um, when I left Boys Town as principal, what, what I discovered there were there's so many rules, I was painting kids into a corner, so they had to come out fighting. And so when I got my own places, it was... Um, particularly with the hardcore street kids, people thought I was mad when there were no, there were no bedtimes, there were no curfews, because these kids would roam the streets every night. Meeting people where they're at, not where Absolutely. you, where not where you want to be. Um, yeah, that's right. Otherwise, you, you don't connect with the, the real mm. kids in need. So mm. it is about saying, yeah, we'll work very long hours, very late hours. Yeah, we'll have to pay more wages because it's after hours. And, you know, your penalty rates. But if we're if we're serious about coming into a place like Bankstown, mm. where are the problems? Who are the problems? And what time do they operate at? So mm. we we did research on all that and. Um, I guess the greatest thing I've uh, contributed, I think, to the organisation over the last couple of years is uh, when we go into a troubled area, we employ young people from the area. Right. And it, so they're trainees. And now, you know, we've got two trainees have gone through six years with us from Macquarie Fields after the rights there. Both of those are now senior youth workers in, in, in a variety of services. And I got a report yesterday that um, on the anniversary of that, the riots in Macquarie Fields where two their mates were killed. Um, one of those kids who was involved in the riot is now a senior youth worker at the Youth Centre Macquarie Fields and he got up on the anniversary and spoke and you could have heard a pin drop on that floor because he's one of them. Yeah. And he's, um, he's been there. He enchanted them with his, you know, they had a minute silence and uh, it's, this, this is the thing that's worked most powerfully and I guess what I say to people now because I was saying to me, you do, your work is so powerful. I said, yeah, look at me, I'm standing back here. Look at those young ones out there. Look at those trainees uh, at Bankstown. And you have some real challenges with trainees in, in a sense. But again, I'm pretty patient with them and I really enjoy them. They're a group that I love being with. At, at our last um, ASM meeting, um, you know, they got a, their awards given. Well, there's, there's whistling and um, clapping because it had 30 of these yeah. trainees, now youth workers, mm. um, all young. And the party after, I don't go, I don't go to. Right. Um, 
because I know it's going to be far too wild. And, <laughs> and I know a couple of... You know your boundaries. <laughs> I know my boundaries very clearly, and, and they would get um, told very quickly. A couple of the African kids, they are only young trainees, are really, really drunk. Um, so that was interesting. But I, I love that age group. I'll be out Bankstown tomorrow walking around with them. I just love that age group. Talk about that, because I guess a lot of, uh, a lot of businesses will have um, graduate programs. Now, I know they're very different in one sense but they still these kids might have jobs and they might have been through university and they might have so-called stable families and yet they still have the same deep down maybe issues of insecurity issues of vulnerability and so forth what can someone in a senior leadership position do to really bring youth out and and make it so vibrant in the organisation I guess that the strategy I picked up of getting trainees on board whenever we went to an area so um, what you see when you move into an area is someone might go in and bring a program in right. and you don't get as accepted and, and at times uh, the fact I move quickly not doesn't mean I make friends in all other youth services so, yep. um, if Koshi says on, on sunrise one man will say Bankstown I said oh Koshi what do you know what youth services are going to think of me when I go into that area so but what we've been able to do is really quickly get young people who are passionate about their community I don't care what their reputations have been beforehand. Mm. I say, once you've got my shirt on, you, you, there's no room for movement there in terms of breaking law and so forth. And they, we just seem to just get these amazing young people very, very quickly. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think um, I, when we go into a new area, I always lead it. I don't, um, I don't get a manager straight up. I will be there leading. And in Bankstown, for example... The police basically said to me, it's too dangerous for white people after dark in Bankstown. So I said, if I'm going to send trainees out in that area, I need to be there with them, even though they're all dark-skinned, all my... So they were going to be safe anyway. But they had um, a passion. And I remember Sunrise did a story, and after his story, one of the young ones ran up to me and he said, can I give you a hug? And I said, no, you can't. I don't hug people. And, but there's this tears in his eyes and passion in his face that says I'm going to make a difference in this community mm. and seeing that in young people and walking down the street with them yeah. you know tall strong young guys uh, and we always get young guys as, at the initial and then about eight months after there's a need then to get our girls the trainees as well so I'm picking up here in terms of uh uh, within organisations, be present, show up at least in those initial stages. Like no one like, the, if you like, the leader. We're talking about it's, it's no one like that to, to model the way. Also, then get them to do it rather than thrusting a program on them. What are those graduates in this case uh, passionate about? And tap into that passion so they're the ones that make the difference. Yeah, um, because they're known and. Uh and then you have some great conversations, some funny conversations when you when you're sitting around with the, with these guys. I mean, uh, sometimes I have to say, I am the CEO, and I am a priest. So will you watch your um, language and your conversations? <laughs> well, I remember being at Bankstown one day. A group of kids can't swearing. Now, one of the young Muslim kids who is a trainee, he's only 18, very connected to me. He. No swearing fathers here. And I'm thinking, well, I didn't tell him that. But yeah, it was just that you. sensitivity. And, um, but you, you're just sitting around, you know, waiting for kids to come in and you're cooking a barbecue with them. And they get really, really familiar. And I like that. It's, uh, it's not familiar in a rude sense. It's very much 
they have a great um, respect for me mm. because they know that in many of their cases I've changed their lives mm. by giving them these well, from familiar from the word family in terms yeah. of the way we connect. In terms of family and connection and boundaries, um, how do you uh, uh, maintain good relationships with your team? Because you talked about the importance of that management team. Um, yet at the same time not let the standards slip. You know, uh, you talked about corrective action before. What are some of the ways that you lead as a leader when you're in that space? Yeah, I don't tend to get involved with that sort of stuff now. It's amazing what sort of company I now run. We've got HR and all those sorts of roles, which I'd never heard of, you know, <laughs> 20 years ago because I was, you know, trained as a priest and as a teacher. So that was my language. Uh, so I don't get involved and I don't tend to... Um, be, want to be involved in that sort of stuff to right. be honest um, I, I do set a standard in some senses that, that um, more and more now I'm, I'm, I'm stressing that managers need to use seriously the three month trial period or probation period okay. because you can't you pick up on um, behaviours that are inappropriate and they need to be dealt with otherwise you're dealing with them for years um, so I you know I'm I'm not the best buddy to everyone. I'm not. I'm not that yeah. role. I find very easy with young people and my managers. But in the middle sort of stuff, I let managers deal with that. And some of that stuff really does concern me. About you know, not not often, but I really get cranky when there's people who have no integrity who will um, yeah. go off and get a sick uh, certificate because their manager uh, gave them a direction or or. Or, or a correction that they didn't like and so their reaction is to go off and get a sick thing and having people on those sorts of situations mm. for months is, I just think how do people live with themselves and, and then come back again after the certificate runs out within three hours of back again I'm thinking that really makes me cranky because there's so much work to be done yeah, it's, it's, so little, in, little yeah. integrity and, and they're draining the resources we're a charity and we're still able to pay them uh, because they're on that sick leave or whatever, so but it, there's not a lot of that. But that really does um, really annoys me when I see these people don't really put the kids first. Mm. The majority of my staff do everything for the kids and, yeah. and love the kids, but uh, there are people who who are in it for the job and, t- and want the easiest way out. Um, so they really make me very cranky. You, would, you wouldn't tend to attract. I mean, this is my presupposition that you tend to attract people that really want to be here I would think to make that difference though overall would that be the case? Or? I think that would that would be most of the case but mm. we have had experience uh, and again there have been uh, people who have been kept on as um, casuals and I really don't okay. like we need to be really careful of casuals because they do have rights too and, yeah. and at times um, they have been neglected so I've been caught out so those people get a bit disenchanted again uh, if they haven't had managers I guess who have been supportive or or positive with them and, and I guess we do when I have a, man, a senior manager who um, is really tough on people I, I certainly am happy to deal with that conflict in terms of um, senior managers don't like this about me but I say any staff any kid has a right to meet with me no matter what okay and if they come in, and, and even my uh, development team get really worried because I know so much because I'm on the grassroots. I'm dealing mm. with managers who are having yeah. problems with the, the office, who are out there with the kids and need instant action. So I, I will come back from a supervision and say um, to the office, what, why hasn't this been action to these people? You know, why haven't they been given a budget? Why haven't they been given approval to purchase these things that are crucial? 
and he get a vibe of, you know, I wish he didn't know so much. But I said, you know. <laughs> so it's really, it's a really interesting role because it, it reminds me in, say, some of the hospitals where you have, like St Vincent's, where you have a director of mission. Uh, and so you're really, you're, really, you're really director of mission and at the same time you're at that grassroots level knowing what's going on. Just a little bit up there and say you're the uh, introversion. One of the things we've been uh, trying to push with leaders is to share your allowable weaknesses, share your vulnerabilities. That if you uh, if you come in with ego, then people often won't talk up, or they'll look to you to solve it rather than doing it themselves or sharing who they are. Yeah. Um, what would you say your vulnerabilities are or allowable weaknesses are as a leader, and how do you compensate for them? Um, I don't think I have a. Um a great ability to manage the business side and, and I haven't tried and don't want to try and so. you've been very upfront about it too yeah, yeah. And, and I'm very ha- what I do uh, do very effectively is I don't micromanage anyone okay. so once I give a person a job um, I expect them to do the job um, I won't be trying to find fault with them I won't be calling them in to tick off boxes um, it's basically I trust you if you blow that trust um, be careful then but I really try and just give people a job, don't interfere with that job. If they're senior managers, I'll supervise them so they'll talk about issues with anyway. So that's certainly one way of doing it where I just say, set of skills. Yeah. Um, I'll get people who have those skills and I'll trust them and I won't be doubting them or, or you know, finding fault with them. So certainly that's one way of saying, I don't have every skill. I lack a lot of skills. Um, I like really tight structure. Um, in a classroom, but there are some kids at a stage where they need to deal with their pain before they get put into structure. So we'll start a school for those kids, and I'll keep right away from it and let the uh, teachers who are really patient and um, it's only a very small group of kids normally in that setting. But let teachers know who know and have that passion uh, do that job. So I, I just know when I have to let go, I can't. I can't reach every kid, but we as a nation can reach every kid. I can reach a group of kids, yeah. uh, as will every staff member we have. Uh, so acknowledging that I don't have the the, um, the ability to connect with every type of kid around. So it's basically also it's acknowledging there's certain skills I don't have and yeah. then getting out of the way of people that have those, not micromanage them, which yeah. is a sense, a, a sense of trust, knowing that your reach is not going to be there for every kid, so it has to be done through people rather than through you, I guess. Yeah, and the bigger we get, the more that becomes a, yeah. a reality. And the more you become, to an extent, even more a director of, of the culture or the keeper of the, of the flame. Um, yeah, I don't see myself in that role, but... Some do, but yeah. I don't, I don't so what's the so the if there was a piece of advice you could give to corporate leaders? I mean, you must you've, you've talked to many, you've met many to, to create more human enterprises. What would it be? Uh, Even though I know you don't see yourself yeah. in that role, uh, uh, it's really hard to, for me to give advice to CEOs or other companies. I guess. Um, I guess at the end of the day, if you don't have passion for your work, there's no point being there. I just really think it's something yeah. you must really love, uh, be passionate about, want to do, and not be able to do everything, but at least be in touch with the core, the core elements of 
lobby company and for me the core elements are the, are the young people we work with so yeah. that's where I become focused on so I guess CEOs need to look at allowing their people to work um, you know without micromanaging them uh, they tell me in some fields that um, I remember being in a I, I shouted at someone in a board meeting. I really blew hell out of my PA, <laughs> but it was all set up. She bought a two million dollar check-in to the board meeting, and one one of the board members looked at me and she said, "Was that a joke?" I said, "Yeah, no one yells at each other in workplace." She said, "Yeah, they do." Yeah. I said, "Really? What? You get yelled at?" Yeah, I'm a lawyer. I get yelled at. I'm thinking, "Wow." The Judy came in with a two million dollar check, and I said, "How dare you interrupt this board meeting?" And she, oh, I'm sorry, Father, she, she has the ability to put on tears. <laughs> and so we laughed and said, oh, she's bought a $2 million check-in that she's got. But it was amazing when the board members actually thought that, that I was serious. That we do it, wow. And yeah. I said, does this happen in your... Yeah, it happens in a lot of corporate areas where people shout at that and, and put down. I'm thinking, well, that, that's really quite scary. And so uh, I, I guess that's apart from the, the CEO and the leaders, is there... Um, is there advice about how we can just best be with each other in, in, a, in a business? Yeah. And with each other, like with team members? Yeah. I've made a rule because I, I, with the email, introduction of the email, um, in some ways it, it can destroy a culture because people don't um, mix with each other. They'll write them from here to the next door, they'll email. So encouraging people to go and meet face to face and using email to deliver a message without using it as a, um, a tool to attack. I've seen that too many uh-huh. attack each other. And yeah. it's not so much... They might never even meant that, but it's the way it's interpreted. Course, yeah. So I'll never be critical of anyone in an email. It's just a, an instruction or a response. Um, mm. So it's about getting to know, know your people as, as well as you can, I guess, and um, trusting them uh, and just believing that they're they're there for the right reason uh, and if they're not that'll, that'll soon be sorted out anyway but I guess so and I'm not a great person you know I'm not, gr- not a great mixer with staff I don't spend a lot of time with my staff but on the grassroots levels that's where I find yeah. it and I do supervise a mm. lot of the senior managers now yeah. again you're so clear on on who you are and what you bring aren't you <laughs> and very yeah. very articulate about it so people know clearly the, the, the part that, that you play um, yeah, uh, one manager said the other day, he said, I'm going to really miss your management because you um, you give me freedom, but I also knew really clearly where you stood on issues. Yeah. And I thought, that, that's nice to know that he knew that, which is amazing because up to the age of 18, I was this kid who had no, ba- you know, had no confidence, uh, couldn't put anything clearly, couldn't box anything in and make a clear decision, whereas I can just just on a daily basis just making decisions very very quickly and very because it comes from a 38 years of, of developing a whole lot of skills and a whole lot of knowledge about kids and services for kids that i that i know exactly where i'm going to go right. but i'm still open it was one of the uh, african guys came to me and said to me um muhammad said to me are you going to work in africa and i said no way i'm not going to damn africa to work i said what do you want to know for he said I want to set up something like this and that in my in Sierra Leone. I said, I believe you have, or you're, is it, or you're going. Oh, no, we, this is, Tony, we've got Tanzania. We're building a school. Tanzania, but, okay. but he said um, he wanted. I said, oh, if one of mine wants to go and do something like that, I'll back him. So yeah, you get your skills together, and we'll. I said, Sierra Leone is very, very dangerous, mm. but it's your country. And I said, um, so he came in the other day saying, well, when's this going to happen? And I said, well, 
you've just graduated from the traineeship, you've got a bit of extra time because you haven't performed in areas, your face-to-face work with kids is brilliant. You know, these African kids idolise you. But you report writing and, and you're preparing stuff. You know, your manager's concerned about that. So I said, you're really looking at three or four years before I'd even try that. And you've really got to upskill in terms of writing reports and managing programs. So he was really excited. And I, and I guess um, just seeing young people and being able to give them that opportunity uh, for me is probably really exciting. So we're now training I'm, and I'm teaching them myself uh, six Africans who are going, not trainees, but they're doing a diploma of youth work and uh, we get the work given, but they, they come here and I'll take them through that because they need so much, you know, writing skills and reading skills. But we just need to get a, an employment pool of Africans as well because we're working with so many Africans right. now. So. so this whole thing about expanding the reach and, and doing it through the people that are best know those people, the whole idea of not holding back on feedback too like you, yes you're fantastic with those kids face to face and there's report writing skills and there's other yeah. things so that uh, constantly raising the, the level as such. Yeah. Is there any um, and it sounds not like, it's not like an esoteric question, is there any advice I guess to not so much um, the uh, with the people but just how can we make businesses better to be more community uh, involved. You know, sometimes businesses are, and sometimes it can be a throwaway line in terms of their social yeah. corporate responsibility. What can organisations do to better connect with our community and our world? In terms of me giving advice to CEOs, I would find myself to be, in terms of the normal CEO, a pretty inadequate CEO. So I'm not sure I can give too much advice. What I have seen... Um, there's some great companies and some great CEOs and sometimes I look at them and think, wish I was that good. Um, and what they've done very often is some, some of them actually give their staff time to come in, into charities and do work. So right. we'll get a group of staff uh, in here painting uh, or down the farm building fences, uh, doing that sort of stuff, getting out in the streets working, you know, doing street walk. Um, and I, I still think the most important bit of reading and, and study I've done over the last 20 years is, is strength-based interventions. You've got to look at your staff strengths rather than your deficits and that's why I've been able to survive with these kids. I, if I looked at their deficits, I would have gone under okay. if, I, if I only yeah. concentrated on their deficits. And yeah. I think we've got to see that each, each person's different, all have a great deal to offer and we've got to find that, um, that goal, if you like, that strength of theirs and mm-hmm. encourage that strength. Um, before certainly looking I at I think there was another faith, the Buddhist faith, they talk about if you look for the dirt or look for the gold, it doesn't matter either way you'll find it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and and yeah. so, so, so one thing is, it sounds like just get them involved and maybe give time to be involved with the community through, through corporate. Yeah. And, and, the, and the second big thing, look for strengths, play on strengths. Within, yeah, within each of their team. And I guess with young people, I say to my staff, you know, these kids need a lot of patience and you know if they're in a drug program it may take eight, eight or nine attempts so when you don't give up after the first one and mm. if you're constantly looking for deficits so it becomes adversarial uh, with young people and I presume it becomes adversarial in any company where you know someone is just being put down constantly um, mm. they basically give up and become uh, almost passive aggressive very often a lot of people in that role and it's mm. because often the way that their leaders have have 
not lift them up or no. they put them down. Maybe we should we should ban performance reviews and call them strengths reviews from now on in. <laughs> I think some need performance reviews. I acknowledge there's problems there at times, but yeah. you you've got to work really hard to solve those. Yeah. But yeah, I, I certainly um in supervision I really believe they're not I, I really think they can't be used as um times to beat people up. No. And I think or from the reaction of staff who I supervise when they first come in, it's as if we've been to supervision before and we always get told off and I'll say, have you got anything for me? No, nothing for you. What are you doing? So, so no, it's uh, it, once again a great reminder to, to focus on what you can do. And I, what I love about what you said there, Chris, if you, if you only focus on the downside, you get adversarial situations and also it just tires you out. So, um, any last uh, any last words in terms of, of leadership before we have a look at maybe how people wanted to contribute to Youth Off the Streets that they could do that? Any last words of? No, I think I. <laughs> what about our? What about? Uh, which, what's this is it? Collingwood. This is Collingwood. Yeah, we've got uh, for the listeners. We've got uh, these beautiful dogs. <laughs> Chris, one hell of a licking up here. <laughs> so, if um, if people wanted to make a, a contribution, either either money wise or time wise, uh, is there a site or something we could go to, or a phone number you'd like like to give? Yeah, there, there's a the safest thing to me would be to give the website. Okay, I can't remember the numbers. Um, but au and if anyone wants to donate, there's certainly a way to do that very quickly. And also, we're one of the few organisations that uses volunteers. Um, people, a lot of people won't because they say they're not professional, and th- and that's why we use them. They have this um, just down to earth love. And you, you get an 89 year, 79 year old granny walking around with our kids, hugging them and cooking for them. It just brings an extra bit of humanity to them. Yeah. So we do use that. Uh, volunteers a lot. I think we've got about 600 on the books at the moment and in all sorts of fields. So yeah. uh, volunteers are really So there's a useful. place there. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we do all the checks and balances on everyone who comes in touch with our kids so that they have to go. That's not uh, distressing if you're if there's not something um, in your background anyway. Yeah. So. so Father Chris, I think some someone once said there are many uh, paths to the kingdom of heaven and there's probably many therefore ways of actually being a, a, a CEO or a leader and I think that you've given us a whole, whole new light on what that really means and and uh, so thank you on behalf of not just the youth of Australia but Australia and, I, and, and thank you for reminding us of the importance of getting in touch with your passion and, yeah. and, and that you just can't leave without that so wonderful to spend time with you. You too, thanks. Okay. So there we go, many, many lessons, both from Father Chris and his uh, two dogs, uh, and lessons for all of us, uh, irrespective of the leadership roles we find ourselves in. Some of the things I love that Father Chris talked about is find your purpose, find your passion. Without that, you just won't have the energy to keep going. Imagine that four hours sleep a night for months on end. Look for and build on the strengths in others. They're there, you have to look for them. Uh, get close to people, but not too close. 
know what leadership style best suits you and what you're best suited to. Get clear on boundaries and uphold those boundaries. And above all, really care. And that's certainly what Father Chris does and, and Youth Off the Streets. So thanks again for listening to Enterprise Radio. We'd love you to post your questions or your comments on our blog at thehumanenterprise.com.au and certainly to find out more about our transformational leadership services, give us a buzz on Sydney, Australia, 02990 or send us an email to soul, S-O-U-L, at the human enterprise, that's enterprise with an S, dot com, dot I'm Paul Mitchell, speaker and author, be true to you.